you would please turn in your Bibles to Nehemiah 12, and from there we'll turn to Roman, excuse me, Hebrews chapter 9. We're going to read from Nehemiah 12, verses 44 through 47, and Hebrews 9, 1 through 14. Please stand. In doing so, we express our reverence for God's written word. For the grass withers, flowers fade, but the word of the living God endures forever, so it becomes his people to hear and heed it faithfully together. For this is the word of God. On that day, men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes to gather into them the portions required by the law for the priests and for the Levites according to the fields of the towns. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered, and they performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as did the singers and the gatekeepers, according to the command of David and his son Solomon. For long ago, in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers, and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. In all Israel, in the days of Zerubbabel, in the days of Nehemiah, gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers, and they set apart that which was for the Levites, and the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron. Now please turn to Hebrews 9. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness, for a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence, it is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat, Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but only deal with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Let us pray. O Lord and our God, we thank you for your word and even more for the ministry and the presence of your Holy Spirit. And we ask now that the Spirit would bless the reading, and especially the preaching of the Word, that the people of God would be built up in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation, and that the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, would truly receive glory in and through the church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated.
One thing that sets Christianity apart from other religions is that Christianity is a religion that sings. Ever thought about that? Christianity is a religion that sings, and that even beautifully. Eastern religions only chant, and many of them lack any form of psalm whatsoever. Islam forbids the use of musical instruments, and even to a certain extent threatens those who use them. And where will you find the great hymn book written by atheists? A collection of great atheistic hymns that celebrate, well, nothing. By contrast, not only do Christians sing, uh, arguably, and in fact, strongly, the great music of the past was clearly inspired by Christian composers who often wrote about, sung about, the beauty of God, the glory of God, even the beauty of God's creation, and climactically, the hope of the resurrection. Take away Christianity, and what would you call the beautiful music of the past? There would be very little music in the world at all. So our text today continues uh, the theme that we had from last week of beautiful God-glorifying worship, and today we're going to focus on the idea of worshiping God's way. And we'll consider that first by thinking about how our God is glorified through the beauty of order. Now there's a popular word, order. But when you pause and think about it, uh, what would life be without order? What would worship be without order? One of the reasons we tune ourselves, no pun intended, to the idea of order is that here embedded in our text is a certain clue that God wants his worship to have a measure of order. In verse 44, the first verse of our section, uh, you see the phrase there uh, that the Israelites are now doing as they celebrate for worship that which is required by the law. If you look down to verse 45, a similar note is rung where the things that are done and even the way that Israel worships is according to the command of David. Required by the law, according to the command. You can't avoid there uh, the obvious note of worship through order. God is a God of order, and there is no such thing as life or beauty without order. Do you believe that? Uh, There is no such thing as life or even beauty apart from order. Let me illustrate this from a few different angles. We zoom out uh, for just a moment. Uh, The story of creation itself begins with order. The days of creation are not simply done uh, chronologically, if you will, but also in a way that describes God something like a master painter, one who infuses creation not only with a sense of order, but at every little step, increasing beauty, getting more and more beautiful as the days go on. Like a great painter, every stroke of his brush is intentional. Every drop of paint falls exactly where it should. Every hue of color blends into its place exactly as God designs. And in the end, what is it? It's not simply good. It is beautiful. God himself calls it good because it is. Psalm 19 says that all of creation declares the glory of God like a choir that has been perfectly fit together where everything knows its place and it comes in the form of melodious harmony. We see the beauty of creation all around us. If you go outside, you cannot miss it. Psalm 19 tells us that that is the case. But not only do we see it outside of us, uh, we also, in a certain sense, see it inside of us. Now be careful. This is not a puff you up moment. You're beautiful, even if you're not good looking. Psalm 139 says that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Man is no accident but is intelligently designed by a beautiful creator that always does beautiful things. 
And what is, what is beauty in man? When we even think about uh, the very category of beauty, what we actually are describing, though we don't realize it, is symmetry. A person is beautiful because both sides of their face are perfect reflections of the other side. And a person that we describe as lovely is someone who really has, to use big words, bilateral symmetry, which is another way of saying order. Order is required by life. If it weren't for order, uh, nothing would work. Cars require order. Who would want a car that was put together out of order? Would you drive it? Lines and lanes on the way here without order would lead to violence. A day in your life without order is a day we would describe as a day of chaos. One of the worst signs that we can see on a building, particularly uh, certain rooms that are very important to us, are out of order. So you get the point. Take away order, and you take away the beauty of life. And this is why God not only loves order, it's not a bad thing. He gives us order because God himself is a God of order. And worship in Nehemiah reflects not only the beauty of God, but the order of God embodied in worship. In fact, this whole chapter, Nehemiah chapter 12, is something you could liken to a large parade full of order, just as it is full of beauty and celebration. The musical procession of all the people is like that of a well-coordinated choir where every person not only knows their place, they walk in time until they reach like a wedding group, that step that they were meant to stand upon. And the musical performance is like that of a high art symphony, well-composed, reaching as high as the heavens because God has rescued us from the depths of hell. If you've ever been to a symphony, you know something of the sound of beauty. And if you've had the unfortunate experience, like myself, of ever having been slam dancing in a mosh pit, you might call the music there and the activity many things, but I highly doubt anyone's going to come out of a mosh pit and say, oh, that was beautiful. Without order, there can never be any such thing as beauty. Lives that glorify God are infused, not simply with beauty, but also with order that is scripted by scripture itself. And that's not true simply of our lives or creation in general. It's also certainly true of our worship. So let's move now to our second point and think about how God is glorified through the beauty of worship. What would you say is the Presbyterian life verse? I don't need a vocal response there, uh, but, but we have this playful way of saying that the Presbyterian life verse is to let all things be done decently and in order. I'm not quite sure how we earned that. Uh, it seems fairly right in some ways. Uh, apparently, Presbyterians love order. Apparently, they love decency alongside of order because it's biblical, 1 Corinthians 14.40. But it's important to note that even as we think about that language, all things being done decently and in order, and we talk a little bit about worship, I am going to lean on 1 Corinthians 14 here for a few moments. That chapter is not about church polity. That chapter is not about elders' meetings. It's not about policies or procedures. The language of doing all things decently and in order comes from a chapter on worship. Worship is to be done decently and with order. Paul, in the book of 1 Corinthians, was correcting the church for having worship that was out of order. Things had gotten chaotic. People were speaking out of turn. 
You know what that's like? How overwhelming can that sound be? People were singing out of turn. Even beautiful voices, if they do not take their turn, can be something of a nightmare. No one was being edified. Everyone was being selfish. And Paul effectively describes the worship of the Corinthian church like a, I had to work on this, a confusing cacophony of clanging cymbals. And that's what it was. A whole lot of noise making no edifying sound. Like a room full of toddlers that have been given uh, play instruments, but only they are having fun. Any adult listening is tortured by it. Everyone wants to go first. Everyone plays at the same time. A whole lot of noise, but no order, and therefore, no beauty. No one would call that a beautiful sound. Paul corrects this by referring to 1437, a command of the Lord. What is the remedy for disorder and chaos, even in worship? It's the word of God. It's the word of God that orders not simply creation, but that new creation activity of worship itself. Worship that pleases the Lord, reflects the character of the Lord, that begins with his holiness, for God is what? Holy, holy, holy. It reflects his beauty, because God himself is full of beauty, but it also comes to us with decency and order, because God is above decent and full of order, and everything that he does is edifying, so also should worship be edifying in the church. And so Paul says, 1426, let all things be done for building up. What is the goal of worship? It's to build up the church. What is the goal of our gathering together? It's to build up the church. Yes, it foremost is to glorify God, but everything done ought to be done for edification. That's what you see, beloved, not simply in a New Testament text like 1 Corinthians 14. It's also what we've been looking at here in Nehemiah chapter 12. In Nehemiah, the sound of this beautiful worship, we are told, was heard far away. In fact, it's a beautiful refrain. If you look at verse 43, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. We often pit uh, joy and order against one another as though somehow they're enemies. As though that uh, something done in an orderly fashion cannot be joyful. Worship in Nehemiah chapter 12 was beautiful. Worship in Nehemiah chapter 12 was orderly. And worship in Nehemiah chapter 12 was so joyful, people could be heard miles away. It's almost like the voice of a missionary or the voice of a preacher. That voice that is heard from a long distance away. When our worship is done decently and orderly, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 14, it even has a remarkably evangelistic effect, a, a wonderful effect. For Paul says that even unbelievers will be struck by it and fall down and say, truly, our God is among us, not because it's loud, not because it's chaotic, but actually because it's orderly. Why? Because orderliness reflects the character of God. The qualities, attributes, the work of God, our worship should as well. And when it does, it even says something to the non-Christian. There is a God of order. And again, back to the mosh pit. No one leaves the mosh pit contemplating the beauty of creation or the glory of God, do they? Though they might contemplate their own mortality. But people leave a symphony somewhat awestruck. If you've ever been to one, you know that feeling. You walk away thinking, that was beautiful. You walk away almost lifted slightly off of your feet. You almost uh, cannot sense 
or escape the sense of the divine, that there is someone out there that is truly beautiful that would inspire such beautiful, lovely song. So let me say a brief word about style. I don't know where else to say it. We're kind of around it at least. We're close to it, if not uh, right on top of it. We're talking about worship. We're talking about instruments. We're talking about beauty. We're talking about order. We're talking about joy. Might as well insert a word here about style. If you don't get it from Nehemiah 13 and 1 Corinthians 14, I'm not sure where you would. Uh, But there are some things here that perhaps we should consider. Uh, If you are inclined to describe our church's style of worship as traditional, I would gently invite you to please stop because it's actually not helpful language. The very terms, traditional and contemporary, have caused the church nothing but headaches. They're really unhelpful terms. They are consumeristic, describing worship almost the way that we tend to talk about food. Which do you prefer? As though somehow, at the end of the day, that's going to settle anything. And they reduce everything to a matter of personal preference and style, those are not helpful categories. It's very postmodern. It's very self-centered. If, if you like music at a certain place just because it happens to be of a certain style, you've elevated your preferences, no matter what they are, potentially above the word of God. That language of style, traditional and contemporary, cannot be found in the Bible. It cannot be defended in the Bible. There is no church in the New Testament with a contemporary service. And there is no church in the New Testament with a traditional service. We made those words up. Let's give them back. People wrongly accuse worship. And I'm venturing into dangerous territory here, but it's also the place for it. Uh, it's been a big deal in the last couple of years of referring to Reformed worship as white worship. Now, I can say whatever I want here. I'm part black. But more importantly, I'm speaking from the text. And you need to wrestle through this category. Once again, we are down the wrong trail. This misses the fact that in the Bible, there is no such thing as ethnically defined worship. It's a horrible category. Uh, And to even talk in categories of white worship or black worship is simply taking taking one little point in one ethnicity's history and elevating it over the rest of that ethnicity's history. What would people in Africa think about worship in the South? They would find it quite different. And... Even the reformers who began reforming worship all the way back in the 1500s, I love this part, leaned on some very important black men. Black theologians, one we know quite well, named Augustine, who was from North Africa and was an African man. You know what that means? He was black. And another church father named Irenaeus, you've probably heard of, but his nickname is the Black Dwarf because he was a short black man. And when the reformers sought to reform worship in the 1500s that had been abused by the word of man that elevated their opinions above the word of God, the reformers walked back the trail, leaning on the help of the fathers, but ultimately looking at the scriptures. And they did so with the help of not only these men, far more importantly, they did so with the scripture itself. Reformed worship is informed by the Bible. That's the point. It's reformed according to the word of God both in principle and often in practice. Even our style, if we're going to use such a term, is, or at least ought to be, a reflection of our understanding of the attributes of God, the character of God, and drawn from inferences found in the word of God, like Nehemiah chapter 12. 
in 1 Corinthians 14. In Nehemiah 12, what did they do? They worshipped according to what was written in the word of God. You have that language there twice. According to the commands. According to what was required. According to the word of God. This is where we get the idea of what we call the regular principle of worship. That the Bible tells us how God wants to be worshipped. It doesn't leave it a mystery. It doesn't leave it vague. And most importantly, it doesn't leave it up to us. As a great theologian said, if God left worship up to us, we know what we would do? We would just keep cranking out idols over and over and over and over because that's what the heart does. Worship ends up reflecting us. That is the problem very often. In Nehemiah 12, not only did they worship according to the word of God, uh, they even sang psalms. What did they sing in Nehemiah 12? It tells us very clearly that they sang uh, according to the command of David, the songs of David, the reference to David and Asaph is clearly a reference to the Psalter. And where did you find, or what did they find there, but the beautiful songs of praise and thanksgiving. Uh, There's beautiful language here of what God's people were doing as they sang the Psalms. This morning we've sung two of them. The Psalms are beautiful. They're not the only thing that the church ought to sing, and they're absolutely something the church ought to sing. Who is the best songwriter in history? God himself. And whose words are always the truest and surest? God himself. God loves poetry. God loves music. God loves beauty. God loves order. And so they sang songs of praise and thanksgiving, which is a nickname for the songs. For the Psalms, excuse me. In Nehemiah 12, their worship was also accompanied by beautiful instruments. It was beautiful and it was accompanied by beautiful instruments. Beautiful instruments may not be required in corporate worship, but they most certainly did enhance it. And perhaps that's the best way to put it. In Nehemiah 12, you have this beautiful, wonderful collage of all kinds of instruments. In Psalm 150, you have this beautiful, wonderful collage of all these instruments. And we ought to say that, of course, we can worship God apart from the use of instruments. Some, even down the Reformed Trail, have chosen to do that. But you cannot argue that the Bible requires that. And you certainly can argue that the Bible includes not simply the lowest common denominator of instruments, but beautiful instruments that enhance the beauty of our worship. And you can tell that difference, perhaps. There are times we gather together to sing and you walk away, I walk away saying, that was absolutely beautiful. Why? Not because the music somehow takes our place or overpowers our worship, but it's there to accompany and it's there to enhance. And those enhancements are surely beautiful. In Nehemiah 12, their worship was beautiful, just as the worship of our beautiful God should be beautiful as well, full of beauty, full of joy, because it was full of the presence of God. And so with this, we have one final thought to consider. God is glorified for the beauty of service. What you also see in Nehemiah, particularly this chapter, is not simply that the people were gathered together for worship, but they were in many ways finding their place to serve. The final point here drills down into some of the specifics in the text, and particularly that of giving. In fact, uh, you could almost argue that this section, technically speaking, is foremost about giving to the church or to the ministry then, so that the worship described earlier in chapter could actually take place. 
44, verse 44, men are appointed to oversee storerooms full of contributions. You get the sense that Israel is now gathered, not simply to sing, but also to give. Uh, They have come with thankful hearts. They have come with general hearts. Gifts were given, and these gifts were gathered. And they were gathered for the work of the ministry. The priests and the Levites were to derive their sustenance, their livelihood, uh, their ability to live from the gifts that are here described. And the people, verse 44, we are told, rejoiced over the work of the priests and the Levites. They rejoiced over the ministry of the servants that God had sent. They were grateful for the grace of God that gave them the gift of salvation. And they were grateful for the gift of God that granted them the gifts of men with particular gifts for service. This is a lot like Psalm 68, a beautiful psalm where God is described as leading his people out of captivity and among or alongside the gift of their salvation, their redemption, their being brought up. He also gives gifts to men. And some of the gifts that he gives to the church includes those that he gives gifts to serve the church. So what do you find here? But again, kind of like a large choir, everyone finding their place. Here we see all Israel, verse 7, verse 47, giving to the work of the ministry. It's not a select few. It's not just the wealthy, it's not just the poor, it's not just them over there or them over here. It is all Israel here giving to the work of the ministry as it stood in that day. And to say it uh, very plainly, everyone tithed. I know nothing about what anybody in this church gives. I never see any report that tells me who does or who doesn't, who's rich or who's poor. But it's like a pastor's dream though, isn't it? A church that actually believes so much in the ministry of the work that's happening there that that everyone grabs the plow and contributes. It's a beautiful portrait here in Nehemiah chapter 12. The whole church, all Israel gathered together, everyone tithing, uh, so many gifts being given that they had to be gathered and stored and monitored. A hundred years spans the time from Zerubbabel to Nehemiah. This is not just a day. Uh, This is Nehemiah's way of looking back and saying the people of God have been caught up in a great work of the Spirit, where their hearts have been touched by the ministry of the Word and the work of the Lord. It sounds a lot like Ephesians 4, where every member has found their part in the body of Christ, and everyone is doing their part not only faithfully, but even joyfully. And even if we slid back a step or two and look at what has come before us as we reach now, we're almost at the end of the book. In Nehemiah, by the time you get to this chapter, Everyone really has done their part. The builders have built, and they even brought their kids to help. The preachers have preached. They brought their A-game, and the people listened for hours. You remember that one particular sermon? Don't you dare look at your watch after 25 minutes. They stood for six hours (laughs) and didn't complain. In fact, they even sung at the end and sounded kind of happy about it. The singers have sung. And they all seem to have found their place. The musicians have played. And the sound of it was not only joyful, it was even loud. And finally, all God's people gave together, just as all God's people sung together, because all God's people were worshiping together. And they did so in and out of corporate worship. Nehemiah 12 closes on what we might describe as a high, joyful note, something of a spiritual crescendo, where now uh, this is one of those moments where the people of God actually appear to be in a healthy place, 
the people of God actually appear to be doing according to the word of the Lord, the command of the Lord, and in the context of their obedience, in the context of even their orderly worship accompanied by all these beautiful instruments, they are so joyful, they are loud. It's really a great scene. The people of God painted together into a beautiful portrait is a sight to a sight to behold. But unfortunately, and I'll only say a little bit here, this song doesn't last. Like every great song, it comes to an end. The end is actually found in the next chapter. We're like 18 seconds away from the cliff. The next chapter, if you've read ahead, you already know, is an extensive rebuke for them not doing the things they're doing in this chapter. For not long from now, the people of God break their promises and they break the law of God. The same people that stood a couple chapters earlier with their kids in the rain for hours, confessing their sins and obligating themselves to do all the law will soon break it. The same people here seen gathered together, not only in song, but even in giving, are about to abandon the priests and the Levites that they just had begun to support or were supporting in this way. That not only... Uh, Not only are the requirements of the Lord abandoned, the work of the Lord is neglected. Their order, to say it this way, descends once again into chaos. That is the problem. Their songs of joy descend into the sound of sorrow. Here we go again. So what does Israel need? What will fix this broken record? What will bring a lasting song of joy, songs of praise and thanksgiving that are never interrupted? Not only what does Israel need, beloved, what do we need? Well, we need order. We need beauty. We might even say uh, we need rules, but we need more than that, don't we? We need the gospel. We need Jesus. In this text, the people did what the law required. They worshiped according to the way that God had told them. They tithed according to the way that God had told them. And they served according to the way that God had told them. But in a certain sense, the law required that people give, but the gospel requires that God give. God must do what the people cannot do. He must fulfill the law. God must do what the people cannot do. He must give the true and ultimate sacrifice far beyond a tithe, but the gift of his son. And if we think about the son of God only for a moment or two, Jesus satisfies the law that is here described in verse 44. He fulfills the ministry of the prophets who wrote in the days of David and Solomon. He fulfills uh, the ministry of the writings as well. So the law, the prophets, and the writings not only point to him, they are all fulfilled by him. And now through the book of Nehemiah, as we come to the end, or are getting close to it, uh, we have encountered prophets, the ministry of Nehemiah. We have encountered priests. We have encountered kings. But who is the great prophet, the great priest, the great king, who will fulfill the ministry of all those who have come before? And who is it who will do all the rules, all the commands, all the law, and unlike the people here in Israel, at their loud crescendo, who will never descend back into chaos? People in Nehemiah 12 needed to be purified. And earlier we saw it in the last 
sermon last week, they went through that ritual. But Hebrews told us earlier that Jesus is quite different than them. And not only them, even Aaron the priest. For Jesus never needed to be purified. He never needed to offer a sacrifice for his own sins. He never needed to be washed and made ready as though somehow polluted and corrupt. But rather the very opposite was true. He was always holy. He was always pure. He was always undefiled. And he was always harmless. And that's what qualifies him to be the lamb of our sacrifice. That's what qualifies him to be the high priest who opens wide the door. That's what qualified him last week to be the great choir leader in heaven who is not only the recipient of our song, but even leads us joyfully into it as well. Jesus is the great reconciler who inspires the song of our hearts. Not simply the psalms that we find in the Old Testament, but the songs that we continue to write that we could still call songs of praise, songs of thanksgiving, songs of joy, some songs that sound really good with no instruments at all, some songs that sound really great when we sing them in parts, some songs sound wonderfully when they're sung quite loudly, others are a beautiful melody when they come at something of a whisper. Jesus is the great reconciler who makes the woeful heart to sing. He is the source of our song. He is the reason, beloved, for our thanksgiving. And one day, you're going to enter the choir that never stops singing. Israel's song in Nehemiah 12 comes to an end. But we're also told in the book of Hebrews to look for that day when our worship never comes to an end. When we ascend that great hill of the Lord once and for all, and with clean hands and a pure heart, forevermore glorify and enjoy our God. When we gather together to sing now, beloved, our worship is a foretaste in that heavenly choir that never ends. So what is it that separates Christianity from other religions? Well, one of the things is we sing. And we sing beautifully. We sing beautifully when we're accompanied. We sing beautifully when we are not. But the thing that most separates Christianity from other religions is that we sing, beloved, be with me here, of a resurrected Savior. Eastern chants have no eternal life to celebrate. Islam has no resurrected Savior to celebrate. And atheists just can't write good songs. But because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, our worship should indeed be, beloved, the most joyful singing in all the world. Why? Because our joy... The source of our song is out of this world. Let's pray. Our great God in heaven, we thank you for the songs that were sung that day in Nehemiah chapter 12. Songs that stand against the backdrop, not simply of the exodus, but of the fact that you brought your people out of exile once again. And Lord, how much more have we been saved by the blood of Christ How much more were we slaves, exiled away because of our sins, far from your presence, and yet brought near even now through the blood of Christ? We ask this morning, O Lord, that you would cause faith to increase in our hearts, that no one would depart from here in unbelief, but rather that all eyes would be fixed upon Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, the one who has gone before us, and even now has opened wide the doors of heaven, so that by faith now we might enter in 
and even in the flesh, one day we will see your face. And we ask, Lord, that as we continue to sing our pilgrim songs, songs of thanksgiving and praise, we ask that you would help us to do so, not according to our preferences or style, those are trite categories, but rather according to your word that gives us so many wonderful categories, so many helpful ways of thinking that frees us from ourself and brings us more closely to you. So Lord, invigorate our praise as you promised to do, inhabit the praise of your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.